0: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we visit the Space Industry Association of Australia down at Jeff's Shed to learn about strategies to grow Australia's space industry. And we investigate how Frank Sinatra's Fly me to the moon, actually flew to the moon. And a story about the Landsat and the Aquanaut. But first, this.
1: National Radio News. Good afternoon, I'm Emily Francis. Back home, the tiny township of Nolanboy in the Northern Territory has international focus this week as NASA prepares to launch rockets there. The newly constructed Arnhem Space Centre will send off the first of three suborbital sounding rockets. Michael Jones from Equatorial Launch Australia says the launch is an Australian first.
2: So this is Australia's first commercial space launch, and it's very much the first time that NASA has ever launched from a commercial
1: facility. Launch day is scheduled for this Sunday.
0: And uh, we look forward to reporting that on next week's The Space Show. Now, Australian company Fleet Space Technologies of South Australia has another satellite in orbit. The Centauri 5 satellite was placed into low-Earth orbit on May the 26th by a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Florida. The 12-kilogram craft is orbiting at an altitude of 530 kilometres. The new satellite is joining the existing six Centauri satellites. The fleet aims to have Centauri become one of the world's most advanced low-power satellite networks, thereby securing global coverage for Internet of Things devices. A previous satellite, Centauri-4, was launched one year ago. This new Centauri-5 includes enhancements that mitigate the effects of radiation. Next year, Fleet plans a new constellation of satellites called Alpha. Now to the United States. After some problems, the Artemis 1 wet dress rehearsal has been successfully completed. On the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center, the Space Launch System rocket was fully fueled and the countdown proceeded to the T-29 second mark, which is as far as they had intended to go. The major problem was a hydrogen leak in the quick disconnect that attaches an umbilical from the tail service mast of the mobile launcher to the rocket's core stage. Uh, This rehearsal clears the way for the maiden flight of America's big new rocket, which stands 111 metres tall and has an empty mass of 70 tonnes. Fully fueled, the mass is 2,500 tonnes. A launch date has not yet been set for Artemis 1, but it will be no earlier than August. And way off on Mars, the Ingenuity helicopter made its 29th flight on June 11th. In 66 seconds it flew 179 metres at an altitude of 10 metres. That brought the total distance flown by ingenuity to seven kilometres and a total flight time to 55 minutes. And now on the space show, we're going down to Jeff's shed on Clarendon Street where the Space Industry Association Conference was held. And the question of the day was, where does the growth in the Australian space industry come from? The session was moderated by Tim Parsons, who is the co-founder of Delta V, New Space Alliance. So let's hear from the Space Industry Association and Tim Parsons. Hi, everybody.
3: So uh, from the scaffolding that we hope to get gross, uh occurring, the legal frameworks, to actually how the hell are we going to make this thing grow, the Australian Space Agency has uh, set itself a target of tripling the size of our industry to $12 billion and also the goal of creating 20,000 jobs, which is on us as a collective group, industry group, and also on the wider Australian... Society and economy, and in particular, probably a lot of folks who are not in the room today, who are not yet engaged with space, that we have to bring on this journey. Um, I'm very, very delighted to have a panel for you uh, tonight of folks who represent different stages in the life of companies. So I'd like to bring up first Troy McCann, who's sitting there in the wings. And he, Troy works with Moonshot X nationally to accelerate early stage startups and help those startups do M&A. We also have Carly Scott, who's from a gazelle, uh, uh, Equatorial Launch Australia, a well-funded startup, so effectively the next stage in a company's growth. Then we have Jeremy Hallett from Clearbox Systems, which is an SME, an established business with solid clients uh, and uh, Australian-owned company started in 2008. Is that right? 2007. 2007 fantastic. And finally, we have Mark Ramsey, who comes here from a Prime SITEL. Uh, I hope I said that correctly, uh, it's an Italian company that has operations all around the world. Now, you know, guys, we are, um, there's, there's us between the audience and a beer, so we're going to have to be super fast. So I'd love it if you can give a real quick 30-second intro, maybe starting with yourself, Troy, and then we'll work through the company life stages, let's see how they go.
2: Cool. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, so uh, I'm from Moonshot, uh, as Tim said, so... Um, We are accelerating humanity, and we do this by running a series of events, programs and investment opportunities in cities all around the world, Um, but of course, especially here in Australia.
1: Thanks very much. I'm Carly Scott, CEO of Equatorial Launch Australia. We are launching and recovering payloads flown to and from space, and you heard earlier the importance of launch in enabling industry holistically in the space sector, we're certainly looking to play a strong role in helping to grow the jobs and opportunities of the future.
4: Hi, everyone. Jeremy Hallett from Clearbox Systems. As Tim mentioned, we were born in 2007 um, but only realised I was a space company in 2017 when the IAC was held in Adelaide. We'd been doing satellite communications across the military for companies like Telstra, for the ABC, for Air Services Australia, but... No-one cared about space, so we weren't a space company. So now I'm on the bandwagon, uh, given that's a big part of our business, and i uh, glad to be here to, today to share some thoughts.
5: Good afternoon, everyone. I won't be long. Uh, my name's Mark Ramsey. I'm the General Manager of Satelli Australia. I think it's probably a pleasure to be called a prime. We're around 400 people, so we're firmly in the sort of medium enterprise headquartered in Italy. We've got about 20 years' heritage in uh, electric propulsion, space avionics, and, and more recently, small satellites. So... When we talk about small satellites, we're really in the 50-kilo to 300-kilogram range, so that next step up from CubeSats. And Satel Australia was founded uh, only about six months ago now, and uh, we plan to hopefully be building those level of spacecraft in Australia in the future.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks, folks. So we've got uh, representatives from different life stages, as I said, uh, and the reason, sort of uh, happily, uh, is that we need to grow this industry. Now, one of the... Uh, the speakers that we couldn't get tonight, Sean Wilson, um, he made a comment uh, in his apology note, which is very interesting, around growth. And he mentioned this idea that a critical mass is coming into view in Australia. Um, I'd love it if you guys could comment on that. Uh, there's some background. We've now got the Australian Space, Industry, uh, uh, Australian Space Agency and this conference. We've got something called DEF 799, which is a defence project worth about $600 million. Uh, and uh, Equatorial Launch, hopefully, hopefully Australia's first operating commercial launch base, uh, Gilmore Fleet, Miriota, Newman, Skip, Sabre, Innovore, joining folks like yourselves, Clearbox Systems, in raising rev- raising uh, investment capital or or certainly uh, revenues. So you know, critical mass is that the secret to the growth that we need to achieve here? Twelve billion dollars, twenty thousand jobs. I think so, but for the reason that. I don't
4: think the Australian market's big enough to hit those growth numbers. We've got to be going overseas, but the industry in Australia is just not seen as credible yet because of that critical mass issue. Why would an overseas customer buy from little old clear box here in Australia where I, the government doesn't even know who I am, let alone advocate for me overseas? So I have a space agency now and I'm optimistic about what that future holds. Um, international engagements was mentioned several times by Anthony this morning, and I think as other companies come along, similarly, they're going to find there is a market here in Australia, but ultimately it's going to be overseas, and hopefully we can harness that to hit that critical mass to win those opportunities.
2: Yeah, I think we're in a, we're in a particularly interesting um, both geographical position here in Australia because we're so close to a, a big emerging market in this area, which is Southeast Asia. Um, but we're also in a... You know, this, this space industry, or I like to, it's, a, it's really a whole economy because it's really starting to, you know, sort of like an octopus. It's really going into, you know, defence, mining, education, um, medicine, all these different areas as well. So it's really sort of more than that. Um, and it's so new in the way that we're able to do things now. You know, we've got, like, Fleet and Marieta and uh, all the, you know, Gilmore. These are startups ups um, with very small amounts of money they start off with um, and they're able to do really, really big things which is something you really just couldn't do before. So today, you know, I love a comment from Jason Held. Uh, he says, you know, for less than the cost of a Boost Juice franchise, you can start your own commercial business now. Um, and it really is true. So all around the world, this is quite new. and We've got a blank slate that we're starting with here in Australia. Um, and one of the things that we've spoken about a lot over the last few years, particularly when the Space Agency was sort of still in, in the planning stages, was, well, we know that we need to have an export industry. But there wasn't really much conversation around, well, how do we do that? How do we change the international culture to be more accepting of Australian space exports? And so one of the things that we've been doing at Moonshot is really starting to create new relationships overseas. Uh, and now that we've got the space agency, they're doing that as well. And I think these sort of new channels that are, that are arising, now that we have a, an industry-focused agency, it's really sort of one of really two in the world. The other one's a UK space agency is going to create really great opportunities for us here in Australia. So last year, we were actually able to show that we could bring new companies over to Australia. They want to be here to set up to create new jobs and create opportunities here. Uh, So we've got a really favourable place to be, and we're able to have those companies also start to tap into international markets, whether it's over in the US, whether it's in Europe, or whether it's in Asia, um, as well as Australia. So I think we're in a pretty
5: good position. It's it's a very interesting time. I think if I could add to that... uh in Australia, the Australian government actually spends significant money in space capability. We're talking billions of dollars, and we've seen this morning in defence sector, you know, the, the next 10, 20 years is, is billions of dollars now. For a start-up to get a million dollars of revenue is a really exciting opportunity, but for the Australian government to consider buying locally for even a, a percentage of that, whether it's 10, 20, 50, whatever the number... That would turbocharge the industry. And, and when you go to Europe and, and the US, they, wouldn't, they don't entertain the idea that they'd buy almost anything offshore. They buy it from their local industry. And here we have this kind of scenario in Australia where we're having to argue for a small percentage of our government funding to come locally. So I, I think in the next five years, if we're really going to supercharge this, it's the political decision we've chosen to build submarines in Australia, I think we can build spacecraft too.
1: I'll go for it as well. When we're looking at that critical mass and that wave that we're talking about of enthusiasm around the space industry, let's think about three components that we can all work to that help build our own enterprises, uh, the state of the industry here, and our connections overseas. So we talk in the panels here about how we get kids involved in STEM, and I think that discussion is really important to that ongoing wave and that critical momentum continuing to build when we talk about existing industry here and how we work with each other there are some really important connections around us doing business with one another and supporting each other's enterprise that's important and that reach to overseas in continuing that critical mass growth is something that's really useful as a discussion with the space agency to say in particular it's fantastic to see you signing MOUs with different nations to help facilitate industry growth let's see the next step around those discussions that help to facilitate trade and those trade agreements and the fine details of those trade agreements that actually mean we can transact more easily and that's something we're seeing as a launch site as being crucial to really paving the way for the whole range of industries that are looking to grow in Australia.
0: On the space show we are at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre And the topic of discussion is the role of small to medium enterprises in growing the Australian space industry. Let's go back down now to this conference with the Space Industry Association of Australia.
3: Carly, I'll stay with you for a second. So uh, a sort of a leading question, I know. But if we look at aviation and the aerospace sector more generally, it is really, uh, you know, there's apparently in an A320 or Boeing 7, seven there's four layers of supply chain across hundreds of thousands of suppliers and components and so on so it's already a globally integrated industry. What are the things that we need to do as an industry to qualify ourselves to be part of similar space supply chains globally With, you know you 've got this vantage point as a launch site operator you must have some thoughts and we'll follow after that going down through the, the road
1: yeah, you're absolutely right there are a range of formal qualifications that you need to link into the supply chain of space no matter what business you're in. As a launch service provider, we look at providing best practice from our understanding of our environmental mitigations and debris management um, to meet the Act, but also um, how we work to step through the different trade relations internationally. And certainly when you're looking to do that, it's not just the regulators here that you need to talk to, but it's understanding how you form those formal agreements to start sharing information in an appropriate manner. So even before you're transacting and actually um, shipping goods to and from... To get that supply chain right, you need the agreements in place and to demonstrate that your company has sufficient um, stability within it to undertake those agreements and follow them through. So, Tim, it's a really interesting thing that you say with supply chains because one of the things that we talk to um, some really large integrated groups around the world, from airports through to the space industry more broadly, uh, is that we hear this conversation, the business case won't close if you don't have the supply chains right. And that includes your own internal processes and those agreements, but also your connections into industry locally. So the supply chains are really important. I
4: was going to say, the, I think the Commonwealth can assist on that front. As the space industry is burgeoning in Australia, we've seen companies such as yourself to come to Australia to grow their business and we need to make sure that it's not just you know, a brain drain and tech, no tech transfer happening... We need to be building up Australian companies to enter into the supply chain for what you're doing in Australia so that when you do it over back with the mothership, you've got options out here as well so we can get in there. And that's kind of similar to what... I've lived the dream for that, being a defence contractor, but you know, sometimes three or four levels down as a subcontractor in big programs, you've got to start small and hope that you win that first deal here locally and then you can get sucked into the big machine and head overseas with those larger companies.
5: Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably second your comments there. We, certainly in, in all of the large companies I've worked for, w- when we look to supply chain, we're looking for a couple of things. Firstly, the sort of quality standards. We're always looking for someone who can build something to a standard that we know is not going to fall over straight away. Secondly, to technical standards. And in, in Australia, we're in a really interesting position as to whether perhaps we adopt some of the European technical standards or the American that has some real supply chain Implications If you can build to a European standard, we're really interested in you all of a sudden. If you can build to an American standard, all the American uh, companies are, uh, are, are really interested. In, and they're the kind of key points. And even knowing how to engage with large primes because um, having worked for most of the large primes in Australia, they can be really tough to engage with. And the business cycles can be months, if not longer, to work with them. So just knowing how to work with, with uh, larger companies is a kind of key, key problem to solve too.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, we need to teach those Yanks the metric system too, right? <laughs> yeah.
5: So I was going
2: to say, so I've, uh, so I've spoken to, to quite a few larger primes like Lockheed and, and Boeing and, and those sort of groups about um, about what they think about this. Because a lot of them are... Sort of looking, you know, considering dipping their toe in the water here in Australia with, you know, what can an Australian space industry look like for them? And particularly on the supply chain point, it's very hard for them. So this is this has sort of come from across the board. It's very hard for them to actually understand what companies and capabilities there actually are here in Australia. Um, so we've obviously got, you know, groups, you know, small SMEs and startups here that are very very visible, um, but they can't necessarily make up the entire supply chain for a particular solution that they're working on. Um, So one of the big things that we have to do is start to look at, well, what are the other capabilities of companies that don't necessarily seem like they're a part of the space industry? And are they able to produce the work or can we help them develop the capability to meet, for example, European quality work? And can then we help these primes actually have access to them? So... At the moment, you know, a lot of these primes are actually looking away because they, they don't necessarily know, you know, is, is, it, is it something they can actually do here in Australia or should they actually look overseas to try to find a particular capability? So I think having that sort of, I guess, a database almost to be able to understand where the supply chains in Australia are are going to be
3: pretty critical as well. And there's something pretty unique about space, which is, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to get stuff into space, right? So to what extent is TRL-9 a factor, you know, if you're an Australian prime, Australian-based officer in a prime, or if you're an overseas supplier looking at Australia, if you want to de-risk your subcontractors, surely you're going to look for people who have that TRL-9 flight heritage experience, right? Is that, is that true? Have you seen that in your journey? I'll
5: start, uh, if I may. Uh, certainly, you know, getting runs on the board in space is a pretty key thing. Uh, what, what we lack in our ecosystem at the moment is the ability to move from kind of TRL 3 to 7 or 8. When you go to Europe and America, they have these sort of regular calls for proposals for SMEs, local SMEs to say, here's my idea, I've done a bit of research and I'd love to translate that to something a bit more productised, a bit more practical launch opportunities given from NASA to get things in space. We, we currently don't have that in our ecosystems, so for those companies that do jump over that divide, they've got to find VC money, they've got to find big primes who are willing to take a bit of a risk on it. Uh, it would be great for the Australian Space Agency to have that kind of program, but it's going to unlock success because it's really hard to sell a space product in a global market if you haven't got it into space.
1: Technical readiness is a really interesting point for us. We get to have a higher technical readiness on our launch vehicles because we outsource that. Um, And so when you're talking about reaching that technical readiness level, I think it's an interesting thing for Australian industry to look at to see how much you have to do on your own bat and how much you can work with other uh, enterprises, either here or overseas, to achieve what level you need for industry to proceed. Um, so, as I was saying, for us to be able to rely on international vehicles, for example, that are proven technology, brings us straight up to speed to be able to offer those missions to a whole range of different groups. At the same time, it's really important for us to work with local manufacturers, and we've got um, agreements in place that we've spoken about publicly, and we're always open to new agreements to help local manufacturers continue to get up to that level that we can use them for those international customers.
3: So, yeah, you know, other people like... Uh... Also, Next Aero, Black Sky, Hypersonics, as well as Gilmore, folks like that, maybe opportunities to fly.
1: Really exciting. I mean, the progress that's being made in Australia at the moment is something that is just fantastic. We're seeing more testing, more demonstration of capacity, and that will continue to grow. And our hope is to see that there is such a continued growth in our own uh, technical readiness levels that we're able to source things locally more and more. Um, and for us, that comes to a key point that touches back on that supply chain matter is that we need to be able to say in Australia it's more efficient to do it here. We're better at it, it's more efficient. And that local readiness level is going to be really important in that story.
0: On this evening's The Space Show, uh, we are the guest of the Space Industry Association of Australia and uh, we'll be back there with them very shortly.
3: On FM, online, 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern Southern FM. FM.
0: Tim Parsons, the co-founder of Delta V, the New Space Alliance, is conducting a panel discussion with uh, Troy McCann, Carly Scott, Jeremy Hallett and Mark Ramsey on the role of small to medium enterprises in growing the Australian space industry. Let's go back down to Jeff Shedd.
3: So uh, an interesting comment that also came from Sean Wilson of Shoal was he's seeing uh, a change in primes towards making more local decisions. And primes, in particular, thinking about space rather than having a branch office mentality, actually thinking, OK, how do we build a capability? How do we actually compete with those guys in in, uh, Padua? Or how do we compete with those guys in Austin so that I can set up something here that gives me more throw weight globally? Uh, is that a trend that you're seeing? Is that, is that incredibly critical to our growth trajectory? Absolutely, it's, and
4: it's, it's a great time, actually, for us Australian small businesses. Um, to, un- to answer the question about where does growth come. From, shortly, in a short answer I said export, and the other one is you can't do it alone. And one of the great areas with, you know, the Airbuses and the Lockheeds and the Northrop's growing their presence in Australia is they're being proactive, and not doing it alone either and they're, they're seeking, it, seeking out Australian businesses to engage with, kind of to answer the TRL9 question, to not expect that from the start but to dip their toe in the water and say, oh, is, is what these companies are doing got some sort of credibility behind it? Maybe it's funded, maybe it's not. That may, may be relevant depending on how, much, uh, how, how profitable your business is to start with but I'm excited about the engagement we're getting from these businesses which I haven't seen in, in the 12 years of Clearbox history. Yeah, I can go I can with that. I think
2: for, for any, you know, like I said before, I, I describe this as a space economy. It's not just one industry. And for the economy, we really need to have all the different stakeholders getting involved in the different parts of the supply chain, but also in the different just aspects of um, what needs to happen. So, for example, universities have a role to play. Um, government has a role to play. startups, more traditional SMEs, as well as the larger international primes and bigger corporates and things like that. So all of these groups and all these stakeholders have different roles to play, and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's... I mean, this is the one time where I'll say the word ecosystem is less of a buzzword. It's, it's a true thing. It's sort of like if you don't have bees on planet Earth, then everything sort of falls apart. We really need the primes to help be one of those connectors um, to start to look at, well, where, where are the supply chains? How can we bring them together? And how can we help fund opportunities? Because not everything's going to come from, you know, we've got a lot of conversations happening around space, startups, and so naturally people are sort of going, well, VCs are naturally going to be something that will fund that, or, you know, government should fund this. But there's also an opportunity there, as sort of, I guess, might seem obvious, but to actually get some contracts with some of these companies as well. So uh, a lot of funding, I think, there is a big opportunity to have some of these contracts, and it's sort of a chicken and egg. You sort of need to do all, all of these three things at once in terms of getting funding in to build your business up. But as we get more of these primes looking at Australia, there should be more funding available to help uh, essentially raise the profile of, of a thriving small company.
5: I'd add a, perhaps a different dimension. I, I think when the expert reference group looked at potentially creating a space agency, there's a bit of discussion around, you know, is agency the right word? It was a really controversial kind of debate. A lot of people were worried about calling it an agency. Others were hell-bent on making sure it was called an agency. I think think by by literally calling it the Australian Space Agency, it, it made big global news. So wherever you go now in the space industry, everyone's, oh, Australia's got a space agency now. And that's created this sort of buzz and moment for, for everyone in the room here that the eyes of the world are kind of upon us. We're a, a new player. We've got a new agency. We're kind of... Defence is getting excited about it. So naturally, all of the international companies are are looking around for a growth opportunity, they're saying, well, you know, Australia's actually looking like a pretty good bet at the moment. Uh, so they are expanding their team, doing some R&D, uh, now looking at supply chain opportunities. We're, we're doing exactly that, looking at supply chain opportunities, looking at doing R&D locally. And I think, think now we need, over the next few years, to be able to convert to all of those global companies that it's a profitable market, because ultimately if you want to attract industry here, make a profitable market and they'll come.
3: OK, so my last question is relevant to this critical mass. So we have an amazing presentation from Defence today, from CSIRO with their fantastic roadmap, of course, the Australian Space Agency. Um, so the question to you guys is, in terms of, in terms of working together, Is it important that we'll learn how to play as a team? You know, we're here in the capital of sport, the world capital of sport, Melbourne, where we celebrate competitiveness. But is it important that in Australia we also learn to play as a team? And if yes, how are we going to learn how to play as a team? That's that's kind of the final question. Carly, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I'd love to jump into this because there's always conversation about, well, is Australia good for launch? How many people are looking to launch? And are you all going at each other's throats because of that? And we're not. And the reason is because we all know that Australia is small and we need to work together to a degree to get anywhere. And that's very real for launch sites in particular. We're all working together and we have our different advantages. And any industry, historically, government knows this well and truly because they've done this for so long. You get industry players together, you find areas where they're not competing or they can help each other and you get absolutely tremendous conversations. So that's the how for us in launch... We know we have an equatorial advantage because we're at 12 degrees from the equator, and that is internationally a huge position to hold. But by that same token, we know we've got customers coming to us saying, oh, we're also pretty interested in a launch that will probably suit Southern Launch, for example, or another opportunity for launch. And so for us to be able to have a strong working relationship with various sites around the world means that we can be a better customer to any of our our clients because we can say, well, this is what we'll offer you from here, but if, you, if your mission's slightly different from that, perhaps there is another opportunity we can point you to, and it just means that industry works more smoothly, so it can work.
2: Yeah, so one of my favourite quotes is, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and I think in this case it's really, really true. And it sort of goes beyond just, you know, just talking about, well, of course, you know, we sort of mentioned earlier, we need to be buying products and services from each other as well as sort of looking overseas and elsewhere um, as, we, as we grow up our own... Space industry. But at the same time, you know, where there's, you know, I guess particularly lately, it sort of died down a little bit since the space agency's been announced for Adelaide, but we saw that there was a lot of competition between our states, especially, you know, Melbourne versus Sydney, which is always going to be a thing anyway. But it's, uh, it's something that, you know, we, we really need to sort of move past and we really need to look at what are the strengths that each of these different locations have? What are the strengths that we can play to that when we do collaborate, that we will be greater than the sum of the parts when we do that. I think in Australia, yeah, sure, we, we, we love our AFL footy and we love to compete with each other, but one of the things that we are really great at as well is working together. And so if we can move past this, this little speed bump that we've got at the moment, where we are sort of, you know, there is a, there's a lot of competitive talk... Especially you know, academia is another one as well. And we can start to do some more projects together and to collaborate. We really could slingshot ourselves to be sort of at the forefront of this new space industry or space economy globally. Um, and I think all the things that we've spoken about today really um, are a critical part of that uh, potentially happening.
4: Yeah, Thanks for raising the state competition. Because I lived, lived the dream forever with defence having the same thing and then the space agency started and here we go again. So... At least the decision's made now, we don't have to care about that anymore, it was a distraction. But we can work together and we need to work together. Um, but the only pessimistic thing I'll, I'll throw in there is, with the excitement, I think we're going to see a surge in companies starting to do space work. And it's going to go past the point that it's sustainable for the market that we have here and even that we're able to tap internationally. and so in the spirit of goodwill working together, we also need to accept that maybe not all of those are going to survive, five or maybe they're going to emerge or be acquired, maybe going to be acquired by overseas businesses as well. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's going to be for the health of the overall industry.
5: I think it's interesting we brought up the sort of state-based competition. In my experience in the last 20 years, I haven't seen space on the front page of every okay. capital city's newspaper and, and and to see state governments vying for where the space capital... you know. Had they just made a decision up front, everyone wouldn't have talked about it much, but it, this kind of competitive tension actually created investment and interest and newsworthy things, and every day was a kind of topic, and I, I do see in the future the, the sign of a mature space market in Australia will be when there is a lot of competition. It's kind of bad for those of us who are trying to win a piece of it, but it's a sign of a good market, and when there's a 100 companies telling the public about, you know, how, how awesome space is. I, I think it will lift all boats and that's hopefully a future scenario for us.
2: I think so, so one of the things, I'll just, I'll just quickly add, that the way that I look at, look at it, so competition is, is something that's really necessary, but I talk about, you know, collaboration within competition. So yeah, collab- so competition really, really pushes us to, to reach new heights, pardon the pun, it really does. But that doesn't mean that we should have companies that are trying to go it alone. Um, especially now that we, you know, like I said earlier, the average person has the ability to build a space company. We shouldn't have companies that are saying, "Well, I'm going to do a traditional aerospace thing and try to do an entire um, supply chain myself." It really should be looking around and saying, "Well, which, who are the key partners that I can truly actually add value to if I if I join with them?" And it should really be about, "Well, how can these different, I guess, uh, small groups of partnerships compete?" both locally but mostly internationally as well. I feel like that's going to be our best strength is when we, we have some competition, sure. But by collaborating and saying, look, how can we be stronger together and compete internationally at a time where everyone else is trying to clamour and try to understand, well, what is this new commercial space economy? How should NASA facilitate the growth of a commercial uh, industry um, that just really hasn't... We've had nothing that looks like it before. I think we've got a really, really good opportunity there to just leapfrog and just forget all of that.
3: Well, I think on that point, I think we've got a, you've definitely got a global situation where there's a huge amount of change. We've got an opportunity called Last Mover Advantage. Google and Facebook were the last of their type, so hopefully Australia has that. And I think in this question in particular, which is the thing I want to finish with, I would encourage you to continue to ask this question of each other, and let's see how... Quickly and how deeply we can learn given all the, th- the changes. So, you know, where does the growth come from is a conversation and a question we want to continue to have as Delta V online. Right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for the panelists. Yeah, you were yeah, fabulous. Yeah.
0: That was Tim Parsons winding up proceedings there. Uh, He's the co-founder of Delta V, the New Space Alliance. And the panellists were Troy McCann, Chief Executive Officer of Moonshot X, Carly Scott, the Chief Executive Officer of Equatorial Launch Australia, And uh, she's very happy because they're going to be launching uh, three NASA rockets from her launch site in just a few days' time. And then there is uh, Jeremy Hallett, the Executive Director of Clearbox Systems, and Mark Ramsey, the General Manager of CETEL Australia. We thank the Space Industry Association for inviting us down to their meeting. This is The Space Show with Andrew Rennie. On last week's The Space Show, I told of a decision made 60 years ago that changed the course of the Apollo Man on the Moon project. At the end of the program, I gave a teaser for a side story about Apollo and the astronauts who flew to the moon. In 1954, the idea of flying to the moon was quite fanciful. Bert Howard wrote a song called In Other Words and it was sung by Kay Ballard. <laughs>
6: Like on Jupiter and Mars
0: The song was later renamed Fly Me to the Moon, but retained the original title as a subtitle. In 1954, neither Howard nor Kay could have known that, ten years later, Quincy Jones would rearrange the song for Frank Sinatra and Count Basie they would have been even more surprised that it would be taken to the moon by at least two of the Apollo missions. This 1964 version became closely associated with the Apollo lunar missions. It was taken to the moon on portable cassette players by the crews of both Apollos 10 and 11. Now let me insert a bit of history here. Before mobile phones and their ability to carry thousands of songs immediately accessible with a flick or a tap of a finger, there were iPods. Hundreds of songs accessed with button presses. Long before that came the Philips Music Cassette, released in 1963, right in the middle of the time period that the Apollo spacecraft was being designed. People could make their own mixtape of favourite songs from either vinyl records or from the radio. In 1969, before leaving for the moon on Apollo 10, Gene Cernan visited the home of Al Bishop, an employee of the Boeing Company. Together, they compiled a mixtape that Cernan took to the moon. On it was Frank Sinatra and Count Basie's Fly Me to the Moon. On his return to earth, Cernan mounted the tape on a plaque and presented it to our bishop. In its 2018 December 14 issue, the Vanity Fair magazine carried an article that said that from Apollo 7 onwards, every astronaut took a mixtape compiled to the astronaut's tastes by Mickey Cap, And that this audio from Apollo 11 on day three of the Apollo 11 mission.
7: This is Apollo control at 59 hours, 9 minutes. Uh, Apollo 11 now 182,000 nautical miles from Earth, and the velocity down to 3,072 feet per second. Uh, We've had uh, very little conversation from the spacecraft in the past 40 minutes or so. Uh, At this time, the uh, flight plan calls for the crew to be uh, getting ready to begin their eat period. Uh, the intermittent music that we're getting is apparently coming from the spacecraft. Uh, the crew has onboard portable tape recorders with uh, music on the tapes. And as they store uh, their own comments on the tape, the music is, of course, erased. Uh, and uh, apparently the music is uh, triggering the uh, Vox-operated microphones, and we're getting intermittent music down from the spacecraft. 11 Houston, we're wondering whose own horn? We just had a little music there. slide, right, That was good. You can keep it coming down, 11.. The uh, brief bit of music that we got from the spacecraft was coming to us from a distance of 182,190 uh, nautical miles.
0: Buzz Aldrin's mixtape included Count Basie and Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. In the late 1980s, Buzz Aldrin met Quincy Jones, according to a report in the New York Times of 1990, November the 18th. Aldrin told Jones that, just as he was getting ready to make his moonwalk, he reached back and took the cassette of Fly Me to the Moon and played it. Now remember that Jones had done the musical arrangements for Basie and Sinatra. It's not my place to say whose memory is at error here. Firstly, anyone who has ever used a music cassette would know something that the iPod and mobile phone generation might not know. It takes time and determination to wind through a tape to locate a particular song on a tape, which, by the way, was two-sided. There's no way Aldrin would have been able to do this on the moon, unless he had pre-cued the tape. Besides, I've searched through the recordings and transcripts of those six hours between landing and the start of the extravehicular activity, there is no sign that this story can be true. The astronauts were just too busy for musical entertainment. As we have already heard, the crew of Apollo 11 did play music on days two, three, and four of their journey to the moon. It would be in one of those sessions that Sinatra and Basie took their place in space history on the way to the moon, but not. On the moon, in my humble opinion. So with that, why don't we take a listen to Count Basie and Frank Sinatra?
6: Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let song let me sing forevermore
0: This is the Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. In addition to presenting this program for Southern FM, we hold free, FRE, no charge, public meetings on the fourth Monday of each month, which means our coming meeting is this coming Monday, June the 27th. The topics will be the ESPA satellite imagery, Over the Rainbow, This is by a Clayton-based space startup focusing on collecting hyperspectral imagery from a constellation of small satellites. And Spiral Blue, Project Rainbow Python, which uh, they're a a Sydney-based space startup uh, and they're working to enable the next generation of Earth observation applications using space edge computing. And the third topic of the evening will be the scientific results from China's Chang'e 4 mission to the far side of the moon. And yes, the far side is different from the near side. So, diary time. The meeting is no charge, and it starts at 7 o'clock. But you are invited to come uh, sometime between 6 and 7 and purchase a meal. Yes, we are a friendly bunch of people and we have the meal downstairs and uh, you can buy a meal there at quite good rates and very nice ones too they are and also drinks and then we go upstairs to the uh, meeting room at uh, 7 o'clock through to 9.30 approximately. So uh, please join us. Now where do you come? Well you go to the Golden Gate Hotel. The Golden Gate Hotel is at 238 Clarendon Street, South Melbourne. It's on the corner of Clarendon Street and Coventry Street, so very easy to find. So please join us on this coming Monday, June 27, meals between 6 and 7, and then the meeting from 7 till 9.30. Please join us, we'd love to have you there. 88.3
8: 88.3 Southern FM The Sounds of the Bayside
6: Earth below us drifting falling floating weightless
0: Welcome Two Episode 41 of our Planet Earth series, a series in which we look at our home planet. And tonight we have the story of the Aquanaut and the Astronaut. This is how Landsat 1 was used to do bathymetry of the shallow oceans. And this comes courtesy of the Goddard Space Flight Centre.
9: Our oceans connect us, a vast network of waterways supporting the global transit of almost 80% of all goods. That's nearly 11 billion tons of food, medicine, and many items we rely on in our daily lives. With coastlines constantly changing, how do large ships safely navigate these waterways? With shallow water features such as reefs and shoals, it is essential to have accurate maps so ships can avoid these serious navigation hazards. In the summer of 1975, Jacques Cousteau and NASA teamed up with Landsat satellites to see if the same technology that discovered new coral reefs, corrected coastline maps, and revealed uncharted islands could also measure shallow water depth from space.
6: By the radio we get the information of Calypso said, Go! Now!
9: Measurements of water depth, or bathymetry, allow scientists to chart the marine landscape. And just as aerial photography revolutionized topographic mapping, scientists had a hunch that satellite observations could do the same for bathymetry. The 1970s ushered in a new era of global maritime trade and an unprecedented demand for crude oil, resulting in the design of ultra-large crude carriers, or supertankers, capable of carrying up to 30 times more oil than previous tankers. Just one of these massive ships could cause a catastrophic environmental disaster, spilling millions of gallons of crude oil if they ran aground. A leading voice of marine environmentalism at the time was Jacques Cousteau, the world's most famous aquanaut. He expanded the growing conservation awareness from the land to the seas and set the groundwork for the ocean environmental movement. The newly launched Landsat satellites provided a new vantage point from above and opened up a world of possibilities for ocean monitoring from space. Through George Lowe, the Deputy Administrator of NASA, Cousteau connected with Russell Schweickart, a former Apollo 9 Skylab astronaut. Together, the Aquanaut and the Astronaut embarked on a three-week long expedition to find out whether Landsat satellites could make accurate bathymetry measurements. A team was assembled. Cousteau and his experienced divers, Rusty Schweikart, a jet-flying scuba diving astronaut, NASA and university scientists, and the president's son, Jack Ford, an experienced scuba diver. But they still needed a radio operator to coordinate the experiment's satellite-based communications. David Leichenheim, a 23-year-old engineering student, overheard a NASA scientist talking about the position.
8: And I raised my hand and I said, I'll leave tomorrow. I was first to go to Goddard Space Flight Center and get some training on the gear that was on the Calypso as a radio-slash-communications engineer. The Calypso was a 1942 wooden minesweeper. Very narrow and maximum speed was 10 knots. It was very slow, but the ship did what it was supposed to do. It was equipped with a mobile laboratory for underwater uh, research and also had a lot of satellite gear for communications. So I had some training uh, for a week or two, figuring out orbits and locations of satellites. And then I was off to uh, Montego Bay, Jamaica.
9: David met Cousteau and his team as they prepared the Calypso to set sail for the Bahama Islands. There, the clear waters of the Western Atlantic provided the perfect test site for measuring water depth from space.
8: Eventually, we moved to uh, the Bahama area to do this Landsat coordinated effort with another research vessel called the Beyond Dan. Beautiful sailboat actually. It was outfitted for scientific experiments uh, such as water salinity tests and whatnot. So they followed the Calypso around pretty much all of the Bahamas where we were coordinating with Landsat. Beyond that, Calypso, the divers, all this was uh, part of this coordinated plan. My role on a daily basis was morning and afternoon, I would give the captain a Polaroid that had a picture of the local area showing any weather patterns that might have cropped up. In addition to that, my job was to ensure good communications between the Zodiacs that the divers were on, the Beyond Den, also Rusty Schweikart who flew the NASA T-38 jet at high altitude and I would coordinate with the Landsat Group via Goddard Space Flight Center. All those things had to be coordinated closely for timing and location.
9: Once in position, the Calypso and Beyondan recorded the water's depth using their sonar. Then, as a Landsat satellite passed overhead, the ships and diving teams made a series of precisely timed measurements. As Cousteau's chief diver for the expedition, Bernard Delamont recalls...
6: By the radio we get the information of Calypso who said, go, now!
9: That was the signal for the Zodiac divers to start making their measurements.
6: And in this instant, we faire to do three measures precisely. The temperature, the vertical, the horizontal, and when the profondeur was not 20 meters, a prelude nature of the
9: Each night, the boats sailed 90 nautical miles westward to the next experiment site and were ready to take new measurements when Landsat passed overhead in the morning.
8: After deciding where we would position the ships, we would move throughout the area. We were in Nassau, we were in Eleuthera, Northwest Channel, Bimini, Berry Islands. We would hopscotch back and forth.
9: With the detailed measurements taken by Cousteau and his team, NASA scientists demonstrated that in similar conditions, depths of up to 72 feet could be measured by Landsat. Those early satellite-derived bathymetry measurements revealed previously unknown shoals, uncharted reefs, and other navigational hazards, and also helped revise charts of clear water coastal areas, making sailing safer around the world. This work gave birth to the field of satellite-derived bathymetry, and the field continues to evolve today with missions like ICESat-2. The experiment also had a profound impact on David.
8: This expedition changed my life. I uh, returned to Maryland and then got a job at Goddard Space Flight Center. And I worked there for the next 30 years.
9: Since 1972, Landsat satellites have been steadfast observers of our changing planet, making more and better observations with each new satellite. Landsat 9, the newest satellite in the series, will continue recording the spectral story of Earth's ever-changing land surfaces and coastal waters.